Welcome to the Mind and Matter Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Echo Rufer. Echo has a PhD in molecular and environmental toxicology. She's a board-certified toxicologist and currently the director of health sciences at Pax Labs, a company that makes vaporization devices for legal marijuana products. Our conversation starts with a brief overview of what the science of toxicology is all about, as well as a little bit about alcohol toxicity. We then spent most of our time discussing the physiological effects and health risks of inhaling tobacco and marijuana products, including the differences between vaping and smoking in terms of how it works and sort of the physics of vaping or vaporization versus combustion or smoking. We talked about what kinds of toxic compounds can be produced through the combustion of plant material, especially tobacco and marijuana. We talked about cannabinoids like THC and CBD, their vaporization temperatures and things like that, as well as cannabis terpenes like beta-caryophylline or limonene. We talked about the relationship between dose, method of consumption, and toxicity of chemical compounds, the causes of the vaping-associated pulmonary injury that was associated with the vitamin E acetate found in certain illicit cannabis products uh, a few years back, and we talked about the best ways to minimize toxin exposure for people who inhale plant-based consumer products, whether they be tobacco or nicotine products or marijuana products. As always, if you enjoy the content I'm producing on Mind and Matter, please check out the Mind and Matter Substack at mindandmatter.substack.com. You can become either a free or paid subscriber. You can get access to my free weekly newsletter, which comes with updates about upcoming guests and the content I'm producing as well as interesting research and other content related to the topics that I discuss on the podcast and that I write about on the Substack. And please remember, if you enjoy the show, to share your favorite episode with friends or family and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're tuning in. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. 
Hey everyone, I want to take a minute to tell you about a product I use called Everyday Dose. They have created excellent coffee and matcha products with functional mushrooms and other supplements and less caffeine than traditional coffee or matcha products. I actually reached out to them because I've been using their product for about a year or so and listeners often ask me about my daily and weekly diet habits. They make a really good mushroom-based coffee alternative. It contains myconutrients with antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties as well as collagen protein to help support healthier skin, nails, hair, and joints and the amino acid L-theanine from tea leaves. Each cup has just about 39 milligrams of caffeine. That helps eliminate the caffeine crash that can come if you drink regular coffee, which has much higher caffeine levels. And they use a unique cold extraction process that results in lower acidity than normal coffee. And the caffeine microdose makes it suitable even for someone who doesn't normally drink coffee. This mushroom-based product is made using a double extraction from 100% mushroom fruiting bodies like lion's mane and chaga to maximize the extraction of micronutrients like beta-glucans, triterpenes, terpenes, and sterols. Other brands don't typically do this, making Everyday Dose one of the highest quality products of its kind. It's gluten, dairy, and nut-free. There's no added sugar. It's paleo and keto-friendly and made with kosher ingredients. There are no grains or fillers, and it is lab-tested to ensure quality. I really like the taste of Everyday Dose compared to black coffee and other mushroom coffees, and they have a mushroom matcha product loaded with functional mushrooms and collagen proteins, so if you like green tea matcha, you'll probably like that product too. If you're interested in a healthy coffee alternative, I highly recommend giving Everyday Dose a try. Check out the link in the episode description or visit everydaydose.com to learn more. If you go there, you can find special offers that they have for getting a free frother and free travel pack of on-the-go doses with your purchase. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Echo Woofer. And what kind of scientist you are and what that means. Yeah. So I am a formally educated toxicologist. So, um, I have a degree in pharmacology and toxicology, uh, bachelor's, and then I have a PhD in molecular and environmental toxicology. And that has really taken me some interesting places. It is, I have not taken the career path of the typical toxicologist. So, um, I currently work as the director of health sciences at PAX labs. Basically, my job here at PAX is to understand the effects of our cannabis products um, and how that can affect people from both a positive and negative standpoint. So I do some R&D work as well as, but with a a primary focus, I would say, on um, toxicology. And prior to that, I was at places like Apple and Procter & Gamble. Um, So what kind of scientist am I? I am one, I would say, that really likes the puzzle. So I like to figure out what's happening and why to help us understand, knowing that everything with cannabis especially is a puzzle and will continue to be a puzzle because it is just a very complex um, science. So that makes it exciting for me. And so like toxicology, is it is it just what it sounds like? Basically, the scientific study of toxins and how they affect the body? Yeah. So I would say it started out back in, you know, like the major textbook that everybody uses for toxicology is called the science of poisons. Um, I would say that's what it was historically when it started and more, more within the last few decades has become more the science of safety and really understanding how can we make things safer 
Um, because like we can, we can make things really toxic and, you know, you can see some interesting stuff from that, but that's just merely interesting. And so it's turned a lot into understanding risk and risk is really, I think what people want to know about and risk is the likelihood of seeing some sort of negative effect. And that's what a lot of toxicologists spend their time on. And there's kind of two components that make up the risk of a substance or a product or, you know, whatever it is that you're, you're looking at. And toxicologists will spend a lot of time on those two aspects. One of them is oftentimes called hazard. Um, what that essentially means is what is the inherent toxicity of a substance. So you might have alcohol that, you know, can, in some case, it can cause cancer. It can cause what would be called in, you know, by toxicologists, neurotoxicity. Others might call it being drunk, um, as well as, you know, liver cirrhosis, all these other sorts of things that can happen. Um, and that's very interesting. However, that is not risk that is hazard. And the other piece that is extremely important is exposure. So how much you're actually exposed to is hugely important, um, no matter what it is that you're looking at, because we know many people drink alcohol or consume cannabis, and we don't see those effects that are often characterized in that hazard sort of toxicological research. I see. And I know, I know we're not talking really about alcohol today, but like when you get drunk and you get a hangover, what mm -hmm. is that? It's funny you talk about alcohol because my PhD thesis project was actually on fetal alcohol syndrome. Mm. Um, so it's it's thought to be very much associated with dehydration. Um, and, you know, when you're drinking alcohol, you're oftentimes not drinking water and it tends to um, dehydrate you. There's probably some other effects. I know that there's some certain um, genetic abnormalities that not abnormalities, differences that might lead to different metabolism of alcohol that can lead to um, an abundance of a toxic intermediate called acetaldehyde um, that can lead to it feeling unpleasant. And this is oftentimes seen as a flushing syndrome, um, not quite a hangover, but others also have might have some over acetaldehyde leftover if they drink too much and it doesn't make you feel very good. Mm -hmm. And that's just a natural like metabolic byproduct of consuming ethanol? Yeah. So when you consume ethanol, let me think about it. There's an alcohol dehydrogenase um, that metabolizes it. No, CYP2E1 metabolizes it to some extent. And then there's an, um, and it, it's an alcohol. And then you end up with an aldehyde dehydrogenase that changes it to water. Um, and if you don't have enough of that final part of the metabolic pathway, you'll end up with that intermediate product, which is acetaldehyde that everybody metabolizes it to. It's just a different con concentrations depending on how much you drink and your metabolic capacity. I see. So like depending on how much of that enzyme you have and just depending on how much you drink is going to dictate how much is sort of left over that turns into the bad, nasty aldehyde compound. Yeah. And that's why like you can, th there have been numerous studies to show that there is a difference between a binge drink, which is over five drinks in a sitting versus five drinks over the week. You'll end up overloading. Um, when you do the, the binge drink, you'll end up overloading that metabolic capacity, produce additional byproducts um, that you won't produce when you just drink a glass of wine every day or 
some other sort of alcoholic beverage. And I'm talking a standard glass of wine, not like some of these college town <laughs> drink specials that like, you know, a, five half a bottle yeah. or something like that is not, is not a standard drink that counts as five drinks. And so, um, I mean, actually, maybe this is like related to, uh, I guess a foundational question here, which is like, when you think about like, what is a toxin or what is a poison, you know, how much do we have to think about dose here? Because basically what you just said with alcohol is right at a high enough dose, it's going to be quite toxic potentially. And at a low enough dose, it might be not toxic at all or very lightly toxic. And so, so one compound can, can be toxic or non-toxic depending on how much you consume. Is that like a general principle? Oh yeah, that is absolutely. There is a gentleman um, from the 16th century, often called the godfather of toxicology, Paracelsus, who has a, you know, a famous quote that is, is loosely stated in, in more of today's language, it's the dose that makes the poison. And so um, in it's entirely related to dose and, you know, coming back to cannabis and cannabis is really interesting because the dose of many cannabinoids tends to be biphasic, meaning at a lower dose, it might have one effect. And if you get it at a higher dose, it might be entirely the opposite. Um, and so it is dose is, is key. Um, absolutely key. Okay. So, I mean, not only can dose be a factor in terms of like, you know, as you increase the dose of something, it can become more and more toxic or create more and more of a toxic byproduct, but actually a single drug can almost completely shift the physiological effects it will have at a relatively high versus relatively low dose. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we're going to talk a lot about vaping today because that's what you focus on now. It's also, I think, just an important topic given how popular vaping is um, of different kinds. So I want to talk about vaporization and combustion, you know, vaping versus smoking, generally speaking, independent of, you know, whether we're talking about nicotine or cannabis or whatever. So what exactly is vaporization and how is it different from smoking where combustion is taking place just in terms of the, the physical differences? Yeah. So combustion is typically, um, there's not a nice defined temperature where you can say when you hit this temperature at, you know, 927 degrees, it now you're into combustion. It really is a, a continuum of a process. And so combustion occurs at much higher temperatures. So that's, you know, smoking, whatever it is that you're smoking. Um, and at those high temperatures, it will break a host of substances down into other sorts of harmful byproducts. Um, of course, all of them are being, I would say, volatilized and aerosolized. So a, you know, either a smoke or a, a vapor product actually produces some gas and some um, liquid particles that are essentially floating around in that gas. And that gas that's produced is not just air. You know, a lot of your stuff sits in the gas phase as well as the particulate phase. Um, vaporization uses a much lower temperature to um, aerosolize the, whatever it is that you're, you're vaping. Um, and so you're less likely to produce those, um, harmful byproducts, but you still are ending up with a particulate phase and a gas phase. Um, and that's, that becomes that temperature becomes key. And that's why temperature is so important. Um, we actually, and, and this is, 
is, you know, from the vape world, it can be significantly different depending on the device that you're using. So we actually published a paper, I think late 2021 that um, used uh, a thermal camera that's called thermography. And we measured cannabis vape cartridges during a puff and said, okay, what is the temperature of that coil? of our devices, as well as some other competitors that, that we just randomly picked them off of the shelf. We chose one that was a little more expensive that had a couple of um, voltage settings. And we choose, chose one that was kind of like something that might be a freebie. When you buy a product at a dispensary, they might give it to you for free, um, as well as um, some of the PAX devices. And what we found was, you know, not surprising to us because this is how the products were designed and that the our the PAX products were between 200 and 420 degrees Celsius, plus or minus 10% of what is set on the device. The others, I think one reached, depending on um, the setting, one I think had a low dose of like 420 degrees Celsius and another one reached up to 600 degrees Celsius. So that that combustion um, sort of process or paralysis process that happens as you get hotter and hotter can start to happen in the 400, 500, 600 C. And then of course works it way up. Um, some combustion, um, like the cherry of a cigarette, I think has been measured to be around a thousand degrees Celsius. So I see. So at a, a relatively low heat setting, you're causing molecules in the solid material to enter the gas phase so they can be inhaled. But as you keep increasing the temperature, eventually you don't just vaporize things, combustion happens, there's fire, and basically you start melting and chemically transforming that stuff. And whatever it is, if you're melting it, you're likely to produce some number of toxic byproducts that came from that original material. Is that basically yeah. how it works? I, I wouldn't use the word melt though, because melt is not a chemical change, right? That's going from a solid to a liquid. It is, it is an actual breakdown of the product, but you know, every, every substance has a vapor pressure. Mm -hmm. So uh, at a temperature and pressure that it will become more um, the gas phase. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in some of these devices, it's actually bringing along some of the liquid phase as well. Mm -hmm. So, so you can, you can make things turn into the gas phase by applying heat. And if you keep applying heat at some temperature, depending on the molecule, the actual chemical compound will transform into something else. And oftentimes that something else is not a good thing. Right. Right. And that's um, in the, um, the, well, I would say the nicotine tobacco space, they've actually identified a host of substances called HPHCs or harmful and potentially harmful constituents that are, Harmful, obviously, for different reasons, whether it's from a carcinogenicity standpoint, respiratory toxicity standpoint, that have been identified that are essentially common degradants of plant material. So some of those are actually formed in cannabis cigarettes or joints the same way they are in tobacco cigarettes. Um, And those are produced to some extent in some vape products, um, but you know, if the temperature is controlled, it's much, much lower than what is observed in um, smoking. Mm -hmm. So is a fair statement, uh, like a generally true statement, you know, if you're inhaling something, whatever it is, the lower the temperature, 
the the better it's probably going to be or the the less toxic compounds will be produced. You're going to be inhaling what it is that you see the lower mm-hmm. the temperature it is and the less likely of this that you'll produce this other stuff. Now, can you, you know, vape a cannabinoid at 100 degrees Celsius? No. They 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 won't aerosolize at that at that um temperature. So you do have a minimum that you can and we know that cannabinoids um vaporize at a higher temperature than e-cigarettes or nicotine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, we do I do hear about a lot of um consumers that are very concerned about some of the temperatures of these devices. They're saying, well, my, you know, my e-cigarettes at this temperature, but you know, you're just burning the material. And it's like, well, actually it's not, it's just cannabinoids are different. Cannabinoids are not nicotine. They, they work differently. So if you want to vaporize them, you, you kind of are stuck at a little bit higher temperature. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, on the question of nicotine and, and smoking tobacco, in, in particular. So if you imagine someone smoking cigarettes, we've all seen people doing that. At this point, I think everybody knows, right? There's clear health risks associated with that. We know that, you know, nicotine is addictive. Um, we know that there's an increased cancer risk and there's cardiovascular issues associated with smoking tobacco products. But in general, in terms of the negative health risks associated with smoking tobacco specifically, how much of that is the nicotine itself versus some of these toxic byproducts that come from combustion or like other things that the companies add to the cigarettes? Like what's causing what in terms of like cancer risk and, and all of that stuff? Yeah. Yeah. It's really an interesting question. And tobacco cigarettes um, are have been named by the CDC as the number one cause of preventable death. And, you know, it causes a host of different types of toxicity, right? So there's carcinogenicity, there's respiratory toxicity, you know, your CBD or your COPDs, your cardiovascular diseases. Um, and what we've, I think, observed from other forms of nicotine intake um, is that much of that risk appears to be driven by these byproducts. There's some work that has been done um, on the those HPHCs, those harmful um, degradation products, um, trying to identify like the the tobacco industry has went through and identified every component of that they can identify in the smoke of a cigarette, tested each of those in different models of carcinogenicity as an example, and found that there are four or five of those HPHCs that appear to be responsible for the majority of at least the carcinogenicity. So like 80% is driven by these four or five substances. And what's what's HPAC again? HPHC, the harmful and potentially harmful constituents. Ah. Okay. So, and what do you do you know what those are? Yeah, there's there's a list of like, I think it's 93 of them that the FDA has defined. Mm-hmm. So there are things like formaldehyde, acetaldehyde, lead. Um, there's tobacco specific nitrosamines, there's polyaromatic hydrocarbons. Um, there's a lot of substances on that list that are um, at this point pretty well defined. But mm-hmm. even if you go within a subset of that list, those seem to be responsible for a lot of the toxicity. And it's not to say the other things are are risk-free. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a toxicologist. We talked about dose. I will never say anything is risk-free. There are examples of someone overdosing on water, uh, pure water, not contaminated water, just pure water. So 
um, yeah, it, it appears mm-hmm. to be a lot of those byproducts associated with combustion. Okay. So, so in tobacco right. smoke, you get all these byproducts. There's dozens and dozens of them that have been identified as being carcinogenic or toxic in some way, but there's really just a handful that drive most of the problem there. Um, so there's a lot of nasty stuff in there, but there's like a handful of things that drive most of the problems that are associated with smoking tobacco. Yeah. Based on their concentration and the um, hazard of those specific ingredients, that's mm-hmm. what seems to be the case. And that's why, you know, the vaporization products end up, um, you know, talking about significant reductions in a lot of these ingredients is because they are so key um, it's not to say these other pieces are, like I said, totally risk-free. It's just that, you know, hey, we've got the number one cause of preventable death. If we can come 98% of the way from that, like, you know, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and what about nicotine itself? I mean, nicotine is a psychostimulant. It has, you know, kind of an alerting effect. Um, it is, we know that it's highly addictive. Um, is it, I assume at some dose, eventually, you know, it's toxic, just like anything else at a high enough dose, but at a dose that a tobacco consumer is typically your average tobacco consumer is going to be ingesting is, is nicotine itself toxic or carcinogenic or anything? It's not carcinogenic. And I will say I've not spent as much time on the nicotine front as I have on the cannabis front. Um, but nicotine from my read is not the one causing the carcinogenicity is not the one causing a lot of the respiratory toxicity. Now, is it maybe involved in some of the cardiovascular stuff that's much harder to test for? I mean, I would imagine there's some possibility, but there is what's interesting about nicotine itself is it has what's called a very, um, like a a low, um, therapeutic or a narrow therapeutic window. So in order to feel the effects versus where, like, if you swallow a load of nicotine, you can overdose relatively easily and die on you know, consuming a a not as large amount of nicotine as you would think um, versus, you know, you've, there are examples, plenty of examples of of people um, consuming THC and CBD. And while it's an unpleasant experience when they've, you know, accidentally ingested, you know, a couple hundred milligrams of THC, they're not like dying Mm -hmm. as adults, healthy adults. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so then in theory, that sort of brings you to the whole, um, well, I mean, literally the sales pitch behind like e-cigarettes, right? The, the idea would be, okay, we're using vaporization, so it's not combustion. We're talking about lower temperatures here. We are causing the nicotine to become to go into the gas phase so you can inhale it, which is what the consumer is trying to do. But we're not producing as many of these nasty carcinogenic byproducts, therefore it's healthier. Is that a defensible statement? I don't like the word healthier. It's less harmful. I would say less harmful. Is that that defensible? I, well, I mean, it depends on the other sort of flavor additives Mm. and that sort of thing. I mean, there's a lot of unknowns associated with these flavor additives. And so you're not directly replacing what's in a tobacco cigarette, right? I mean, a lot of most flavors were essentially banned from tobacco cigarettes years ago. Um, And so if you're now adding those into, you know, an e-cigarette product, how do those compare? I mean, most, I believe that most companies that are now, you know, selling products legally on the e-cigarette market will have done testing 
and look to understand the risk from those other sorts of um, flavor materials. Um, But I feel like if you look at the tobacco cigarette from being the number one cause of preventable death, your standard and your it's pretty low. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. the worst of the worst. And like, is it an improvement? Probably, but is it 10%, 50%, 90%? And then if people, if people change their use, so like, let's say if you consumed, um, you know, a pack of, of tobacco cigarettes a day, and now you take on the vape product that is no longer limited where you can consume it. And you're like consuming it everywhere where tobacco cigarettes are combined. And you're now consuming way more nicotine. You're consuming way up, more additional flavor. You know, you have, you're maybe using a device that is not very well controlled in temperature. You're producing some of these byproducts. Potentially you're starting to get into the dry hit situation at the end of a cartridge um, that leads to greater production of these byproducts because it essentially overheats. Mm. You know, are you starting to approach the risk, same risk as a tobacco combustion product? I mean, there's that's definitely a possibility. And that's where a lot of the um, research I think is looking to go is to understand like how does changing the product in the way that you've changed it lead to effects on the population and the consumption and all these other things that are not like direct toxicology that you're comparing in a, you know, in, in an in vitro, like cells in a dish or an animal model or something like that, where you're comparing the exact same dose between the two. And when we talk about e-cigarettes, um, vaping nicotine products, they're, they're a liquid. And so is that like, do they have to add something to get a liquid of the right viscosity just for the, these devices to work? And, and what are the, what are the liquids typically composed of? Are you talking about cannabis or uh, uh, still nicotine? Okay. So nicotine in general, in order to get the dose that you would be looking at, which is, is more comparable to a tobacco cigarette, they have to cut it back to, I think it's a couple of percent is all that there is for nicotine. They'll have some flavor and they have to use some solvent in order to dilute down, because you can't do 100% nicotine, you, you yeah. know, somebody, you'd kill people doing that. I see. So, so fi- like the device, they could physically make it with pure nicotine. It's just that that would be so concentrated that that would be uh, not, not suitable for human consumption. I think it also has to do with the harshness associated with, with nicotine to some extent. My guess is it would be a that very, makes sense. Yeah. A very un, like a, not a pleasurable experience to do that. Again, I, I don't know. I've never vaped an e-cigarette in my life. I have no idea. Um, so yeah, they do generally use like, I mean, I think 90 to 90-ish percent is probably um, a mixture of propylene glycol and vegetable glycerin um, are the most common solvents used in the e-cigarette world. And, and what do we, yeah. And what do we know about those solvents? Propylene glycol, vegetable glycerin, are they safe? Are they known to cause any issues? So those are key. Um, There have been some animal studies that generally show um, that they're not of the most toxic um, ingredients that are out there for a respiratory sort of toxicant. Um, But when you start to test these solvents at different temperatures in different devices, you do increase the likelihood pretty quickly on 
these two substances for the production of like formaldehyde and, and mm-hmm. some of the other um, breakdown carbonyls that are observed with um, with these substances that are oftentimes not tested in the animal models because the animal models will often just look at pure PG or pure VG without that temperature component. I see. Um, and is there, um, what kind of temperatures are we talking about here? Are temperatures that are going to be the ones actually used in most of these products or or above that? Um, well, I would say there's a, a range of, of products that are out there. Um, the Some will will be lower. There are others that have shown that it's not just, you know, what people are setting it at, but if they're say using their cartridge all the way to the end, they'll see in the last few puffs that they take, the temperature will jump up wildly. So um, there is a direct like linear response um, once you hit a certain cutoff. And I don't know offhand what that is, where it starts to, to very quickly rise. And it's not that if you have a single device and you have it set at 180 degrees C, it is always 180 degrees C. You might hit the Mm -hmm. end where you start to dry out the wick and then you end up with a, it'll pop up to 500 Celsius or something. I see. So like just the way that these devices are physically built, they're immersed in liquid um, until that liquid goes down as the consumer uh, uses it up. And at some point, the heating element is just kind of exposed and it's not immersed in the liquid. And then the temperature shoots up. And then what wasn't producing as many toxic byproducts before is now starting to do that because it's just hotter. Yes. Okay. Yes. And, you know, if we, if we think about cannabis, so how is can- like physically, how is vaporized cannabis oil different to or, or similar to these nicotine vape products? Yeah, they're actually very different. So um, I would say we can, we as the cannabis industry can learn a lot from the e-cigarette industry, but we also have to do a lot of work to um, modify our approach to what makes sense for um, cannabis. So cannabis vape products are generally, at least from what's sold in the, the legal market within California and a host of other states around the country, um, tend to be mostly a cannabis extract. So that cannabis extract is something like, you know, 80 to 90% of extracted from cannabis. And you'll see on a certificate of analysis or COA that it is made up of your, you know, THC or CBD, maybe some of the other minor cannabinoids. And then the other, the remaining portion of that product will be, you know, flavors or other added terpenes that are um, that are required to be added back after the extraction process. Because when you extract cannabis cannabinoids from the cannabis plant, those cannabis those cannabinoids are extremely lipophilic, and you will lose a lot of those terpenes that will volatilize off during the process. And so those have to be either collected and re-added, or else there's a host of um, ways that you can purchase that volatile, those terpenes essentially that came directly from cannabis. And, and we've actually got um, a product that, that does just that. So it's, it's a hun- it ends up being a hundred percent cannabis. Um, there are other sorts of products that, you know, botanical terpenes um, may be used to, to add that flavor. And, and frankly, you know, the terpenes, um, whether they're from cannabis or from some other botanical source, can have an, a, a significant effect on the experience. 
What um, can you just talk a little bit, very briefly, because I, you know, I've talked about this on the show before, and people are probably mostly familiar. But what are cannabis terpenes, and and you know, what are the cliff notes there? Um, cannabis terpenes are essentially secondary metabolites made by the cannabis plant. There's terpenes made by other plants as well. And um, those essentially provide a flavor and aroma component. Um, in some cases, they can have an effect as well to the cannabis experience. And how, how do we actually know that? What are some examples where they have an effect on the experience itself? Um, well, there's, I would say limonene is one compound that has a very strong experience, or I mean, excuse me, um, a flavor commonly found in citrus. Um, as well as it uh, tends to be associated with some reductions in anxiety, um, some, I would say, happy sort of effects. There's also beta Um, I believe it's also found in pepper, um, but is a common cannabis terpene as well. And it actually binds the CB2 receptor, um, which kind of you could means you could call it a cannabinoid as well, but it is technically a terpene um, that, of course, binding some of these other cannabinoid receptors you, you would have an effect from that. I see. So, so some of these, a subset of these cannabis terpenes are known to have physiological effects. Okay. Do any of them have like clear psychoactive effects or is that mostly just coming from the THC? Well, they're not intoxicating. I would say the psychoactive effect, um, this is one of those nitpicks in the in the world where we talk about psychoactive. We actually mean intoxicating. So CBD is not intoxicating, but it is psychoactive. And I would argue that it's it's similar to um, some of these other substances. Like if limonene has the ability to reduce some level of anxiety, in all likelihood, it is also psychoactive. I see. And what do we know about the terpenes in terms of? any toxic effects they might have carcinogenic or, or just irritants like is there any anything to worry about in terms of cannabis terpenes and in, inhaling them it depends on the dose so um it you know would i use a product that is 100% limonene 100% beta carotene absolutely not um and so it's really dependent and it's really important, you know, me from a toxicological perspective, I think very carefully about these things and um, have actually published a paper looking at how to evaluate whether or not your additive, whether it's a terpene or a flavor or, or whatever, how to assess the risk from that, you know, the concentration that it, you desire to add. Um and, you know, I've also set restricted substances specifications. So this is basically saying, you know, you've got these substances, don't put it over this concentration, because remember, we go back to that risk component, the exposure or the dose is hugely important. Um, so defining those um, is very important in determining the safety. So you could, I mean, you could run into a situation where, you know, somebody decided I really like limonene you know, and decided to add it at 10% to your cannabis extract, in all likelihood, that's going to be pretty irritating and harsh. And I wouldn't recommend it. What, um, so people, most people consuming cannabis products most of the time are consuming it because they want to consume THC for the psychoactive effects. So what's the vaporization temperature for THC? 
And as you go from like, you know, the lowest temperature you could vape a THC product with and you keep increasing it, how much does the composition of the cannabis vapor actually change in terms of all the different chemicals that are going to be vaporizing across that temperature range? Yeah. So um, I will say THC vaporizes out of, so the vaporization temperature tends to be different for different products. It's not just based on that individual THC. So what we see is that temperatures in which you can use a drier product, you can actually vaporize the THC at lower concentrations than you can at, um, with like a concentrate vape as an example. Mm. Okay. So if you're vaporizing flour, physical plant material, you can do it at a lower temperature than uh, an extracted oil. Right. Hmm. Right. So you can do that at like 185, I would say 200, 215 Celsius. Mm -hmm. Um, Ours, our concentrate device ranges from 220 degrees Celsius to 420 degrees Celsius. And we find that different products really aerosolize better at different temperatures. Um, and it will just be dependent upon the formula. I will say generally the terpenes, um, come off and you'll get more of a flavorful experience. You'll get more terpenes at that lower concentration because they tend to have, um, vaporization temperatures that are a little bit lower. Um, but you'll oftentimes get larger hits at the higher concentrations, or I mean, excuse me, the higher temperatures, um, but not as much of that flavor. So I see. So from a health and wellness maximization or harm minimization standpoint, it would seem like you'd want to go as low as possible, right? Around that 200 degree mark, because you'll, you'll get the, you'll aerosolize the THC. You'll have a more flavorful uh, inhalant that's going into your lungs because you've got a higher concentration of terps and you'll be less likely to produce toxic byproducts because the temperature is relatively low. Yeah. I will say with the concentrate, you're not going to find a concentrate device that will vaporize at 200 C. Yeah. Um, And I suppose, I mean, a lot of regular consumers want to take a bigger hit and that's just for, for better or worse what they want. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's all the cloud, like the big clouds is like a, a point I think that consumers actually evaluate. I mean, for me as the scientist over here, as the toxicologist, I'm like, why would you care? Like you're blowing all this stuff out in the air. Right. Because whatever you're blowing out here in the air, like exhaling, yeah, it's you're basically, not consuming. Yeah, you're paying yeah. to release all this stuff that you bought, you know, at not a cheap cost out into the air. Like, yeah. well, I mean, that- yeah, I suppose what people are really buying is the ability to uh, signal how cool they are to their friends. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, okay, so so I didn't actually know that. So you can vaporize cannabis flour at a lower temperature than oils. Uh, the oils are obviously more concentrated. They're going to have a higher concentration of THC and other things. Um, what do we know about any, I don't know, any risks that are unique to, to vaping cannabis generally or the concentrated oils specifically? I'm not talking about like additives or nasty stuff that sort of unnecessarily gets added in by the manufacturer, but for the, the, the actual chemical components of the oil, is there anything, is there anything alarming there beyond just being mindful of, you know, if you vape too much and too short of a time at a high temperature, then, you know, a lot of these things can become at least irritating. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would say THC and CBD, while that is, 
you know, the intent of, of using these products, they are also not risk-free. Um, you know, like as an example, unless a, there are some developmental effects um, associated with um, THC and CBD both. And so a pregnant women, woman or youth should really avoid these, these products unless there's some, you know, risk benefit analysis, I would say done by a physician because different from nicotine, I would say there is actually therapeutic value to these compounds. And so it ends up more of that risk benefit analysis versus just avoiding the harm because like, I mean, there is no medical use for smoking a cigarette, right? Zero. Um, you could argue that's not the case for cannabis. And so it ends up being like a specific case by case, um, discussion with a physician and understanding those, um, effects on a developing fetus or a developing brain. And remember our brains are developing until our mid twenties. They're not just done at 18 because the law says you're now an adult. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and I feel like a lot of people don't know that, or they kind of overlook it. Um, yeah, these cannabinoids have very well documented developmental effects. So we can be completely agnostic about what we think about that, good, bad, or ugly, but they are going to affect the the trajectory of your developing nervous system for sure. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. But okay, so what about there was this thing a couple years ago where a bunch of people got sick from vaping cannabis products. It was called vaping associated pulmonary injury, I think. Um so can you just remind everyone what exactly happened with that? And where did we land? What was going on there? Yeah. So this is, was, I will say that was a very scary time for me. There was a lot of conflation between, you know, it's e-cigarettes with nicotine, it's cannabis, you know, what is the cause? And, you know, it was ultimately found out it was THC um, obtained from informal sources, meaning the illegal market. And I think it was something like 60 people died and over 2,800 people were hospitalized. And what that seems to be a cause of is, you know, it it was originally like, well, maybe it's the pesticides degrading to hydrogen cyanide. Well, this toxicity observed does not look like cyanide toxicity. Toxicologists have studied cyanide. Um, There was some thought that maybe it's metals that are being released from the devices that's also not the cause. We know what metal toxicity looks like. This didn't look like it. Those things are not great, but it didn't seem to to fit the symptoms that were observed in individuals. It actually seemed to be this new compound that was put um, into vape cartridges to dilute the THC, which is more expensive. It's vitamin E acetate. It is generally recognized as safe for oral consumption. It's used commonly in um, topical products, but when added to the vape products, it seemed to do some really interesting things. And so there's kind of seems to be the cause seems to be multifactorial. The first is that vitamin E acetate seems to interact with pulmonary surfactant. Pulmonary surfactant is this jelly-like substance that lines all of those alveoli of your lungs. Those are like the gas exchange portions of your lungs. And they're required to modulate the surface tension to allow you to breathe without significant force. And the vitamin E acetate seems to cause a phase change in that that pulmonary surfactant. When it does that, it made it much more hard, much more difficult for people to breathe. Next, the vitamin E acetate, when vaped, seemed to produce a pulmonary toxicant called ketene. 
Ketene has a similar mechanism of, appears to have a similar mechanism of toxicity as phosgene, which is one of the classic um, pulmonary toxicants that causes significant edema in the lungs. So now you're adding additional water that's created by the ketene component. And then I saw some very interesting research, and this is not published. It was just at a poster at a, at a conference that I saw, but I think they're onto something that the vitamin E acetate seems to be creating an adduct. So it's binding to THC. And when it binds to THC, that means it's not available to get someone high. So if it's not available to get someone high, they're going to consume more because they want to get a certain level of high. Mm. It also reduces binding on the cannabinoid receptor, which is what makes people feel the high that they want to feel. So now they're doing that. It removes the anti-inflammatory effects that are, you know, THC and CBD typically produce. And there's the question of whether this vitamin E acetate and THC adduct is actually causing toxicity itself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is some very preliminary research, but I, I saw the poster and was like, oh, holy crap, this makes sense as to why this vitamin E acetate problem may well be associated just with THC. And you don't see the same effects on nicotine because you don't have that same interaction between nicotine and vitamin E acetate. And people probably weren't using vitamin E acetate with nicotine. I see. So the problem with these cannabis products that were being vaporized, it was vitamin E acetate. And it sounds like there's multiple problems that are caused directly and indirectly. And it is plausibly true that there's a specific interaction that happens with THC and, and the substance. Yep. And so was this, um, was this limited only to vaping products that were produced on the illicit market outside the legal market? Was it also legal products? Um, is vitamin E acetate still out there in anything? And well, um, it was entirely the illegal market. There were no confirmed cases that were from legally purchased products. Um, are there still cases? I will say all of this happened and was being tracked late 2019, early 2020. Then this other little respiratory disease happened to pop up and the CDC stopped tracking. So there was a significant drop. Um, you know, people aren't in the hospital of dying. You do still see a case report pop up now and then. Um, but I think, I think somebody, whoever was making these products with this vitamin E acetate, um, kind of stopped hopefully. And then there's a number of States that have added that to their, um, kind of banned ingredients that aren't allowed, um, in, in vape products. Mm -hmm. And so it sounded before, like you said, in, in contrast to um, tobacco and nicotine vape products, where they sort of necessarily have to add some kind of solvent just to dilute the nicotine down and, and make the product uh, consumer worthy, um, that's not really the case with cannabis. So people are generally not adding diluents and other liquids or... If, if they do... Um, in my experience, it's been very low concentrations. And so what'll happen is, is when they extract from, you know, the plant, let's say you have a product and you regularly have a certain concentration of THC and your consumer knows that they're always going to get 85% THC. And this batch happened to come out at 88%. And you don't want that person to be thrown off guard. They'll sometimes add a diluent, not vitamin E acetate at a very small concentration to adjust that. Um, but in general, other than that, um, 
you're not, I've not seen a lot of it of the companies I've worked with. And, you know, there are a number of people on the plaque, the PAX platform that we actually monitor that. So I've had conversations with a whole host of companies that they're just, they're not, they're not adding these, these, I see. these at any meaningful concentrations. So in general, there's, there's no kind of, there's, there's nothing people should look at or there's not a lot people should look out for, you know, I was going to maybe ask you, okay, if there's, you know, X, Y, and Z substances that often get added, is there one that is better than the other or less harmful? Or is there something people should look out for and avoid because it, it might be irritating or, or potentially toxic, anything like that? Um, I mean, I think what I would do personally um, is watch the device you choose and control temperature. Um, I mean, you can ask about diluents, um, in general and whether or not they're adding them. I mean, sometimes it'll just be, you know, upping the concentration of terpenes, but I think from a, from a toxicological perspective, the way I like to see, to look at things is everything in moderation, because essentially when you're looking at risk, if you've got a dose in which an effect occurs above that a dose and below it, it, there's nothing measurable. It's, it's negligible. As long as you stay below that, you're good. Um, I would also stay in the legal market, um, look for a certificate of analysis um, and not enter into the illicit side because that's where, you know, it's kind of a, a wild west. And when I speak to like, they're not adding these things, I am totally talking about the legal market. Who knows? I've heard some horror stories, frankly, about what's happening in, in you know, with people out there in their garages doing who knows what. Um, and then, you know, they're buying like disposable devices where the air path passes over the like internal electronics of a device. That means you can inhale all of the stuff that is typically inside of a device, which is all sorts of metals. And, you know, there's solvents used in the production of consumer electronics and, you know, that you would never expect. So your device can be a huge factor there. Um, buying from the legal market, you know, you're typically not seeing that. Um, but mm -hmm. you can, it's a question to ask. So it's not. Yeah. So, I mean, just to kind of riff on this a little bit more and for you to reiterate some of that. So like, can you talk a little bit about the devices that you make, you guys make at PAX and what you do to sort of ensure, uh, ensure your, your vaporizing and volatilizing, you know, only what's intended? Yeah. Yeah. So we actually do quite a bit. Um, we have we have two kind of lines of devices. Ones are I actually have one of them here. Um, it is a packed dry herb device, and so essentially the um, flour is put into the um, oven, and you can consume um, that product. We also have a cannabis concentrate um, device and product um, and oils that go, of course, into those pods. In order to um, protect the safety, we won of our consumers, we won um, choose materials carefully. Um, and that means they're food grade. Well, I know food grade is not evaluated for inhalation. It does have some requirements of avoiding certain harmful substances, some quality manufacturing requirements, et cetera. Um, as well as we have what's called a restricted substances list. So that basically means I've defined, I think it's over 400 ingredients or substances that could be used in the plastics or the metals or, you know, anything out the ceramics that might be in that device that we 
tell suppliers you're not allowed to have these here above a certain concentration. Um, the other thing is that we have a, something like 500 tests in our manufacturing process to make sure that we like check for quality and you know that the battery is not going to blow up in your face because you can worry all you want to about the the diluents and if the battery blows up in your face you've got a problem. Um, now from the oils, we also have a restricted substances specification with, I think there's like 270 ingredients on that list that are not allowed to be added. We give concentration limits, et cetera, that, um, you know, like vitamin E acetate, you can't add that. You know, I would say PGVG, while they're commonly used for e-cigarettes with those higher temperatures required for cannabinoid vaping, Mm. those do produce some of those those harmful carbonyls so we want to avoid those mm-hmm. um, and, and, and again just remind us so pgvg it's this common um it's commonly used in e- nic- nicotine e-cigarette products and you said if i heard you correctly you said there's no obvious uh nastiness to it at a reasonably low temperature but at a high enough temperature it can produce some of these harmful byproducts can you remind us again like approximately what temperature are we talking about um, I, th- I want to say it's at like four or 500 C it starts to creep up and then it, it rises pretty quickly and mm-hmm. you really high concentrations at 700 C. I see. So it's, it sounds like based on everything you've told me, like a rough, rough benchmark is if you're below 400, you know, closer to 200, that's going to be the least possibility of producing some of these nasty byproducts, however they're produced, whatever they're produced from. And once you get above or near roughly 400, that's when it starts to happen more. Yes. Yeah. I okay. think that's, that's fair. Um, and remember I'm speaking in Celsius, not Fahrenheit. Celsius. Yeah. <laughs> so, so um, definitely not going to ask you to like name names or, you know, point fingers at any brands or anything, but you described how your devices are made and why you make them that way. Are there any types of cannabis vaping devices that are constructed a certain way that are common out there that you think are not a good choice for consumers? Yeah. I think the one big example is I know that there are some disposable devices that have the so there has to be a place where air comes into the device and then where it leaves your mouth. So you have an air path and you have a vapor path. So once it's produced the aerosol and what's inhaling on the other side, um, a lot of these have an air path that travels directly over top of like the circuits on the inside of the electronics. So I mean, imagine vaping through your computer. <laughs> like right, yeah. I yeah. mean, and that that's what's happening with some yeah. of these devices. And how do you know that? So hot air is going over the physical electronic components and metals and stuff. And it's entirely plausible that you're going to pick up at least a little bit of, you know, God knows what. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I know even during the consumer electronics manufacturing process, there's pretty harsh solvents required as like, you know, putting together a PCB board and, you know, all of that stuff. Um, So you know, who knows what you're getting. I mean, maybe there could be some studies conducted on that, um, that maybe it shows the exposures are below some limit, but I wouldn't at this point where the research is, that's one thing I'd avoid. And then, you know, temperature, of course, is is another huge one. And, and part of the problem for the consumer, I think, is so we're talking about temperatures here because we've characterized the temperatures of our devices when you use a device that you buy from a dispensary, there's oftentimes an on-off button 
well, what the heck does that mean in comparison to temperature? Who knows? And then you've got these others that might have um, multiple voltage settings or wattage settings. I'm not an electrical engineer. I don't know how, you know, to convert those voltage settings to say this is going to equal this temperature. And I think, you know, what we showed in that publication that I was talking about with the thermal cameras was that some of those voltages were the same, but there's other components of the device that affect what actual temperature is um, provided. So I, I wish I had an answer for that one, but I guess it's ask your ask the look into what you're using and if they quote a temperature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you want to be able to easily tell what the temperature is, which should be common sense. You want to somehow verify if you can, that the temperature that's you're reading is the actual temperature. It sounds like the other big thing that you mentioned in the beginning was you don't want a device where that, that air is passing over the, the, you know, all of the internal physical components of the device. Right. Yep. Now, you know, ignoring sort of like health risks and and health stuff, we compare smoking to uh, smoking cannabis to vaporized cannabis pound for pound. I don't know if anyone's done this. So so um, I'm just asking in general, yeah. if you were to I hope someone has done this. This is my question. If you if you vaporized and then smoked the same amount of cannabis, the same starting material, you got the same amount of THC and you know, you you line those things up as closely as possible, pound for pound. Would the experience differ at all? Would THC concentrate, like if you're causing X amount of milligrams of THC to, to vaporize versus combusting the same amount, are you actually going to, is your body going to see a different amount of THC? Is the experience going to be different in any way? Um, people, at least consumers report that it is. People say, oh, I prefer smoking because it feels better or vice versa or whatever. Has anyone actually worked that out in detail? So there's some aspects that have been worked out. Um, now, I think there is a component of personal preference, but I'll talk about the research that I'm familiar with. So they're not even thinking about the health perspective, but we're going to say like some of those tar is what they used to call like the other stuff, right? That's not your, your cannabinoids um, is higher with combustion. And that leads to an experience. There's also carbon monoxide that is produced. And that is not at the same level um, in a vape product. And so I do think that there's also particle sizes that may differ between a, um, a smoked product and a vaped product. And depending on those particle sizes, you may not actually absorb them and you may not get the effect from them. Um, and so that can change the experience. But I think on the carbon monoxide thing, it's interesting. I've got a hypothesis. This isn't actually been tested, but this is Echo's thinking. Um, because people like how a joint hits, you know, for whatever reason, they like the effect. And, you know, there have been some studies where you can can release some amount of THC and they will experience an effect. However, they still prefer the joint. And my, I am convinced that they like the little bit of hypoxia that's produced by inhaling the carbon monoxide. And they associate that with an effect and that, you know, research is again and again shown that it is more than THC that 
affects the experience. Mm-hmm. Even if you deliver the same amount of THC um, or have very vastly different um, concentrations in THC, there's a couple of examples. Ethan Russo published a study within the last few months. I think it's it's something along the nose nose. And so that was based on terpene content. And um, they found that the subjective experience was more related to the 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 perception of the aroma than it was to the THC concentration. There's also another really interesting study that was done by Cinnamon Bidwell in Colorado. And what she did was she looked at two different concentrate two different flowers that were vaped um, at different THC concentrations. So we had 16, I think it was 16 and 24% THC. And then they also, she also did a cannabis concentrate. Um, I can't remember it was vaped or dabbed, but it was like 70% versus 90% THC. And what she found was that even though the blood levels differed a bit, when people consumed and rated the level of high from each of those products, it was the same. So I think that what, what that means to me is whether it's a combustion or a vape product it's more than just the THC. All this other stuff matters. And if you're not burning a product, you're probably going to like the flavor. Although we're sorry, I'm never going to approve a product that intentionally adds carbon monoxide to cause some hypoxia. So it it's like a joint. Interesting. Okay. So that's a hypothesis, but you know, it makes sense. Um, if you're causing some amount of hypoxia, that's, you know, you're probably going to feel that. <laughs> right. Interesting. <laughs> um, is there anything else that that you want to talk about that you think we didn't touch on just in terms of stuff people should know about vaping, whether it's cannabis, whether it's tobacco or anything else? Um, we could probably talk a little bit about, I think one interesting fact, one interesting piece is about um, combustion of cannabis and the relationship to health risks versus the combustion of tobacco. Mm. And that cancer question. Yeah. What's the overlap there? Because I know that um, on the one hand, you know, when they just look at like epidemiological, you know, correlations and stuff, you don't see the same correlation with smoking cannabis that you do smoking nicotine. An explanation that people have often offered there is, well, on the one hand, we know that combustion is producing, even of, of cannabis is producing, you know, your aldehydes and your carcinogens um, of different kinds. Maybe there's some kind of anti-cancer, anti-inflammatory effect that's canceling that out from the cannabinoids, but I don't know if that's been demonstrated. So what, where do we land with that? No, I don't think it's been demonstrated. And I do think that's still a really, you know, important question because we don't see this link, even though we know it produces a lot of those same substances. So I do think that the cannabinoids could play a role. I think there's also an exposure piece in that, you know, tobacco consumers will smoke one to two packs a day. That's, you know, 10 to 20 cigarettes. I don't know anybody smoking 10 to 20 joints a day. So I think there's the exposure piece. And so I would, I would love to see those data, you know, these, these, these long-term epidemiological studies take a long time, but I think that's a really interesting, interesting question. And um, time will tell. I see. So, so I guess the the moral of the story there is, as long as you can 
as, as long as you control for tobacco consumption and these other and some other things, there is not a link an association between smoking cannabis and lung cancer. So it's very different from the associations that we clearly see and and know about with tobacco. And yet we know that you're still producing from the combustion of cannabis a lot of the same carcinogens. So th- there's some kind of mystery there. Yeah, there absolutely is. And I will say that it's also interesting. There have been some studies that were conducted showing um, or concluding. um, I don't think they actually showed it, but their conclusion was that I think it was stroke or other sorts of cardiovascular, like having um, heart attacks at a younger age. However, there were some very important, I think one of these papers has now actually been redacted, um, but they forgot to control for the fact of when cannabis consumption occurred, whether it occurred before the cancer or after or the before the heart attack or stroke or after. Mm. <laughs> it's like you'd think that'd kind of be a big cause. Uh, yeah, I that... conclude that my stroke was called by caused by cannabis if I started the cannabis consumption after the fact. So there's a lot of stuff out there that um, is there anything that you guys are working on at PAX that's that's new and exciting either on the device side or on the the consumable product side well we've got lots of cool stuff coming out but i don't want to i don't want to break the break the excitement that will happen when we uh um launch those products i will say we just um went live are are these new devices that you're talking about we've got a new device in the works um as well as some other new sorts of products that will that will be coming out so uh like like later this year yeah, I think so. Um, I don't know the exact timelines off the top of my head, but we've got we are extremely busy these days and working on all sorts of stuff. So, um, yeah, very exciting. Okay. And just one more time, I know that we've said this at least once or twice already. Let's say that you're talking to someone who is a cannabis consumer already. They already consume cannabis some way. Maybe they vape it. Maybe they are you know dabbing it. Maybe they're smoking it. What would be your recommended method of consumption to uh, you know minimize potential health risks from a toxicology standpoint? Yeah, I would say um, choose your product from a legal, responsible supplier um, and consume at the lowest dose um, that works for you. The other piece is that don't let THC concentration drive your your purchase mm. decision um there again there is so much research out there that your experience will be better for the things that have a a pleasant aroma for you than what just has a, t- a high thc concentration mm. it's not additional value um you're not going to get higher as mm-hmm. a result of a higher thc yeah. but let's say let's say you know they they are an inhaler they they already are inhaling products different ways what's what's what would be your recommended way to inhale? Use a PAX product, of course. <laughs> okay, but 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 more generally, like, are, are they vaping? Are they smoking? Are they? Oh, they're absolutely va- vaping yeah. or smoking. Um, I think, you know, there are now. Is there a comparison to be made bet- between dry herb and like a concentrate? Yeah, exactly. Product? Sure. The data aren't there. 
I haven't seen one way or the other, you know, there's, there's questions on, you know, what are the flavors and ingredients and terpenes and and the like added to a concentrate product versus the plant product. But the same thing with the dry herb is not everything is, is comparable. And because there's been so much, what I would call like intentional breeding that is turned into genetic engineering of the plant, like what is out there for flower today is not what was out there 20 years ago or even 10 years ago or even five years ago. And so you're getting a little bit of the unknown associated with that as well. So making a conclusion between one or the other, it's hard to tell. The data just are not available at this point in time to say one over the other. All right. Well, I think that's all I have. Um, this has been a fascinating conversation. So thank you for joining me, Echo. I think this will I think this one provided a lot of very tangible practical advice to a lot of people that interact <laughs> with with this uh, this area of the consumer world. So um, thank you. Thank you. Hey everyone, I want to take a minute to tell you about a really cool health monitoring device I've been using for several weeks. It's called Lumen, and it's a handheld, pocket-sized device with a sleek design. It measures CO2 levels in your breath, which allows their technology to determine the extent to which your body is burning fats versus carbohydrates. Lumen helps improve your metabolic flexibility, your body's efficiency in shifting between using fats and carbs. It improves your ability to burn fat, which decreases your hunger levels and makes your body less dependent on snacking, and it can increase your energy levels by helping you develop a high-functioning metabolism. I use this device in the morning, before bed, and after meals and workouts to track my metabolism. With just a couple weeks of use, I learned a lot about which foods were causing my body to burn mostly fat, mostly carbs, or both, as well as how long I need to fast each day to promote fat burning. Lumen is great for anyone looking to optimize their health for either weight loss or athletic performance. The easy-to-use app allows you to track your results together with what you're eating and how you're exercising, and it syncs with other devices like the Apple Watch. Click the link in the episode description to learn more and use the code MIND, M-I-N-D, in all capital letters, to get $50 off your Lumen device today.